Well, good morning. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors here at Deer Creek Church. I'm going to begin this morning with uh, a story many of you might be familiar with. It's the story of Jerry Sitzer. Jerry was a PhD uh, candidate. He was working on his dissertation at Whitworth College in California. And uh, Jerry, Spokane, where did I say? California, Washington. All right. So in Spokane, Washington, he's at Whitworth College. And uh, Jerry and his wife homeschooled their kids. They had four kids. And his wife, whose name was Linda, decided that during their unit on Native American studies that they were going to take a trip east. They were going to head to Idaho, into rural Idaho, and they were going to witness a powwow with their family. And Jerry's mother, whose name was Grace, was visiting them at the time. She came into uh, their home, and they decided right then and there they're going to hop into the van. So they hopped into the minivan, they headed east, went to rural Idaho, and they arrived just in time for dinner. They had dinner with this Native American tribe, and it wasn't long into it that they started hearing stories of the struggles and the tribulations that these Native Americans had gone through. And the biggest struggle that they said that they were facing in this Native American community was alcoholism. Young men and young women who couldn't put one foot in front of the other because they had generation after generation after generation gripped by alcoholism. And what made it worse is they said, that compounded on all of this is their leadership also struggled with that very thing. And so after dinner had passed, they were just about to head over to the local elementary school. They went over there and uh, they witnessed the powwow. Then it was a time of celebration. It was a time of dancing. Some of the younger kids got to dance in the powwow and they thought everything was great. And 8.15 rolled by, the younger kids felt tired. So they hopped back in their minivan looking to make their way back to Spokane. On their way back, Sitzer said it was 8.15 p.m., and he remembers seeing in the distance a car driving toward him. And the car was going fast. That's all he could see. And they met a part of the highway where Sitzer had to turn, so he slowed down to take the curve, but the other car didn't. The other car hopped the median, hit into Sitzer head-on in his minivan. And what Sitzer says is in the wake of that, he remembers several things. He says, first, he remembers the carnage that he saw around him the fire, the torn pieces of his minivan and the passenger car that hit them. He says he remembers the screaming of his young children as he pulled them out of the minivan. He says, but what he remembers most was the body of his wife, Lydia, his daughter, Jane, and his mom, Grace, all who had lost their lives. Three generations in an, in an instant. And he said the final thing that he remembered is he knew that after this, he, would be about, he, he was about to plunge into a darkness that he says he may never return from. And as those words, they're really the first words that came to mind, that is the first story that came to mind when I read the opening verses of Psalm 22. And this is a very familiar song. It opens with a cry from David who cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. For some of you this morning, the story of Sitzer and these two verses penned by King David in Psalm 22, they're like salt on an open wound because that is actually your lived experience this morning. 
They're more than simply words on a page. They're a summary of how you feel this very moment. And you find yourself reading those in pain and nodding. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for others of us, this might not be our current experience. This might not be where we're at in the present moment. We, not, we might not be experiencing the anguish and pain recounted by David, but we know, <laughs> we know that suffering will meet all of us. In fact, it's a guaranteed reality of human life. You know that if you live long enough in this world, you will experience some form of suffering. It's bound to happen. In fact, my former pastor in California had a habit of saying, suffering is the one great common denominator of human existence. Meaning, no matter when you live, no matter who you are, no matter what race you are, no matter what socioeconomic status you attain, this is the one great common denominator. You will experience suffering. And we know that. I think about this frequently as well. I think about it mostly when I'm doing premarital counseling with couples. One of the exercises that I do with couples is I give them a list of life circumstances that are prone to bring tension into a marriage. They're prone to bring suffering into their marriage. And they're supposed to identify individually which instance of suffering they would feel most acutely if it were to happen to them. And some of these life circumstances, they're rare. They may never happen. Discovering that you can't have children miscarriage, legal problems perhaps. Some of the instances though, they hopefully will never happen and sometimes they can even be avoided like a loss of a job or moving in with your parents or in-laws or heaven forbid your in-laws moving in with you. <laughs> I hope my parents and uh, in-laws aren't watching this right now. Actually, my mom's here. <laughs> You're free to stay with us anytime, mom. Some instances of suffering, though, they are going to happen. They will happen. Your spouse getting a life-threatening illness. Your child rebelling. You or your spouse battling depression. Losing a close family member or a friend unexpectedly. And it doesn't matter how hard you try, how strategic you are. No matter how much you plan for the future, given enough time, you will experience suffering. It is the great common denominator, and we know it. We know it. And even though we know this is true, we really, especially in American culture where we live, we have really no categories to figure out how to deal with it. Dr. Paul Brand, he was an orthopedic surgeon, and he worked with lepers in India and spent time in the United States as well. And he said what he noticed in American society above any other society is that even though we have great material welfare, great material affluence, great economic prosperity, he said Americans seem ill-equipped to handle and navigate suffering. And he said that that is unique in the Western world today. Maybe one reason we're ill-equipped to navigate suffering is because we just rarely speak about it, do we? Right? It's very rare that you're going to see a book on how to navigate suffering or how you're supposed to think about suffering when it hits you. Here, let me just give you an example of best-selling books on the shelves at Barnes & Noble. Seven Traits of Highly Effective People. It was printed in 1989. It sold over 40 million copies. It's never been out of print since it was first published. 
a little bit newer book, Atomic Habits. It sold 5 million copies, 50 different languages. Tony Robbins, an author of countless books and goes around the world speaking to, to countless people, his, his gross income or his net estimated net worth is over $600 million. And now, there is nothing wrong with these books. There's nothing wrong with Tony Robbins. There's nothing wrong with these individuals who speak on these things. In fact, much of what they speak about and write about and teach about are true. They're helpful. But nowhere, nowhere in those books will they help you navigate or handle a day when your spouse comes to you and tells you that they've been unfaithful? Or when your child tells you that they have walked away from the faith that you worked so hard and prayed for so long to instill in them? They have no way of telling you what to do when the doctor tells you that your days are numbered or that you have to take your mom to hospice care. They will give you great insights on how to mitigate suffering, on how to maximize your potential, but they will not help you suffer. But the Bible, and this, this is what's great and refreshing about the Bible, is it's, it's very candid, right? And it tells us that suffering will happen. In fact, one of Jesus' closest followers, his name was Peter, and he put it this way, writing to a group of Christians who were suffering. He, he reminded them, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, right? Don't be surprised. But what's the first thing that happens when we suffer, right? We're surprised. We say, I read the seven effective habits. Why am I suffering? But here's the good news. This is good news. It doesn't sound like good news, but it is. Psalm 22 is for sufferers. Psalm 22 does not skirt the experience of suffering. In fact, none of the Psalms do. A third of the Psalms, there's 150 Psalms, one third of them are Psalms of lament. They're Psalms that recount loss, injustice, the feeling of guilt, pure exhaustion with life, bewilderment, bewilderment sadness. And in Psalm 22, this Psalm of David, in this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We witness suffering in its most disagreeable form. And so this morning as we approach Psalm 22, what I want to do is I want to help us as a community of faith, as people who want to follow Jesus, just take steps in suffering. I want to take three steps. That's it. Because sometimes when you're in the deepest spot, the darkest spot, the only thing that you can do is just take one step at a time. So we're going to try and take three this morning. And the first step to help us better navigate suffering, the first step I want to show us from this text is that God understands your suffering. This is what you need to know if you were walking through the valley of the shadow of death, that God understands your suffering. There was a movie in 2011. I'm a big fan of thrillers. It was starring Liam Neeson, and it was entitled The Gray. And Liam Neeson plays the character of Otway, and Otway had just lost his wife. We don't know exactly why, but he had lost his wife to a fatal illness, and he returns to work for an oil company that is going to go and drill in the Alaskan wilderness. And early on in the movie, Otway finds himself stranded in the forest in the Alaskan wilderness with his friends and co-workers and a couple of acquaintances because the plane that they were taking into Alaska went down unexpectedly. 
And one by one throughout the movie, he loses his friends. Some he loses to wolves who are chasing them. Others he loses their life to hypothermia. Others drown to death through rivers and the rugged conditions of the Alaskan wilderness. And Otway is brought to this breaking point. It's, it's the middle of the movie. It's really the climax of the entire movie where Otway looks up into the Alaskan sky and he's crying out for the first time in his life for God to intervene. He says, God, are you up there? I'm crying to you. Do something. Show yourself. I'm crying to you. You say you're the God who helps. Show me something. And in despair, after... He cries out to God for him to intervene, to help him in his situation, and realizes that God's not going to answer. He murmurs to himself, fine, I'll do it myself. And the details of that story, they're very far-fetched. I'm making that sound way more dramatic than it is if you've seen the gray. (laughs) The details might be far-fetched, but that feeling is not. It's not a far-fetched feeling. It's actually part and parcel of what David feels in verses 1 and 2. When David cries out, my God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. David's filled with these questions Spinning around in his head, why are you so far off, God? Why have you abandoned me? I pray to you, you don't answer. I seek you, I never have rest. Why, God, where are you? It's important to know who is writing this psalm as well. It's important to know that David is the one who's writing this psalm. Because if you read the rest of the Bible, the Bible almost talks about David in iconic terms stunning terms about who this character is. In fact, when God was seeking out the first king of Israel to be the king over his people, he said he was looking for David, and David is described as, quote, a man after God's own heart. He was devoted to God. He sought after God. He cared about God. He was a faithful follower of Yahweh. When subsequent kings, they they would reign in Judah after David and after his son Solomon. When subsequent kings would come and reign, every single king that followed in David's wake was measured by David. David was the pinnacle of what it looked like to be a faithful king and a faithful follower of God. Abijam, who was one of the kings who followed shortly after Solomon, who was David's son, we're told that Abijam walked in all the sins that his father had did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David, his father. See, every king's success was measured by David. David is the standard of what it looked like to be a leader who followed God. We know this in Denver as well. Every quarterback who ever came in the wake of John Elway is measured by John Elway. And they don't measure up very well. And then you get Peyton Manning, and the measure just seems to go higher. And everybody is measured by what Peyton Manning has done. He's the pinnacle. He's the measure of what a good quarterback looks like. David is the same way. Everyone's measured against him. And nonetheless, David feels forsaken by his God. 
Even the most devout follower of God suffers. Even the most faithful man in the Old Testament knows what it's like to live in a broken world. This should show us when suffering meets our life, when, when it enters in, when we're being taken to chemo treatments, when you're feeling betrayed or hurt by a close relationship, that is not necessarily evidence that we have been unfaithful or that there's something wrong with our faith. Instead, as one commentator put it, his name is James Hamilton Jr., he said that David gives us an example of what it looks like to live the, quote, post-Eden experience. To live east of Eden, to live in a world that is broken, filled with sin, filled with darkness. What we are experiencing is a world that has deviated from the original design that God intended. Genesis 1 shows us what it was like to live with God. But we live in Genesis 3 and beyond. We live the post-Eden experience, and that's worth mentioning. And you need to hear this. Because there are many teachings today that say, hey, if you believe in God, if you place your faith in God, if you follow him, then you are guaranteed health, wealth, and prosperity. And of course, if you experience illness, if you experience poverty or distress or broken relationships, well, then you just don't believe enough. And you, you just don't have enough faith. Because if you did, this wouldn't be happening to you. But here's David, the standard, the measure of faithfulness, a man after God's own heart, and he's crying out in, in confusion, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, God understands your suffering. He inspired David himself to write about it. And David puts this forsakenness that he feels by God in almost gruesome terms. He says in verse 6 that, He's a worm. He's, he's not even a man. He, he feels like a worm, not given the dignity of a human being, not respected like human beings should be. He's descended to the very bottom. And my son Eli, he has these books. He, he loves science, and he has one book that has the, you know, the food chain in it. And the food chain is very obvious. Humankind is on top. We have respect. We have dignity. We, we reign and rule over all things, and everything falls beneath, even predators. Predators like you know, bears and mountain lions, and consumers are underneath them. There's the rabbits and the squirrels. And then there's the plants. That's the grass, the seed, the fruit. And then at the very bottom of the bottom are the decomposers, the worms. David says, that's where I'm at. I'm a worm. I do not have any dignity. I don't have any respect that is afforded to human beings. That is how low I have gone. And David feels this way because he's being mocked by outsiders. You can actually see why David is crying this out. He says in verse 6, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So you can see what's happening here, right? People are seeing David suffering, and they know David believes in this all-powerful and loving God. They know the stories that David would say, that this God delivered his people powerfully from the land of Egypt. He divided the Red Sea for them. He sent ten plagues on the Egyptians to deliver them from their suffering from slavery. And here's David suffering, and they're seeing David suffering, and they're saying, Where's your all-powerful God now, David? Where's that God who saves you? Can you not alleviate your affliction? 
If God delights in you, then why are you suffering, huh? That experience of ridicule and mockery, too, that, that's seen throughout history. If you follow God for any number of time or, or any amount of time, you will receive that kind of mockery. There's a uh, famous first century uh, inscription on a Roman cave. It's called Aleximinos Graffito. You can go home and look this up. Aleximino Graffito is the story, or, or, or sorry, it's this in, engraving in, in this Roman cave of a man hanging on the cross, and the man hanging on the cross has a donkey's head. And there's a man worshiping him next to him. His name's Aleximinos, and the inscription under it says, Aleximinos worships his God. And what most scholars think is going on here is there was this man named Aleximinos. He probably worked in Nero's household, Nero, who was the emperor of Rome, and Aleximinos worshipped Jesus. And as a way of getting back at Aleximinos and outing him as a Christian before the rest of the Roman court, they drew this inscription saying, Aleximinos worships his God. The God he worships is so powerful, so worthy of worship that he died the most shameful death imaginable. He died the death worthy of an animal. It's a way of saying, some powerful God you have, Aleximinos. There's just something about being mocked, too, isn't there? Being mocked is one of the worst things that you can go through. Even trivial things, it becomes extremely painful. I mean, you, you feel like people are laughing at your expense. And it, I, I know this because I'm a Rockies fan. And whenever I watch SportsCenter, whenever I watch SportsCenter or Baseball Tonight, there they are. They're mocking the Rockies. And I feel like it's in a personal affront. I don't even play for the team. I probably could at this point. But I, I don't even play for them. And I take it personally. That's my team you're talking about. And here's David, not something trivial. They're mocking him, the king, and his God. Some powerful God you have, David. <laughs> Some God you've trusted in. And that's why David describes his mockers like bulls. Verse 12, he describes them as bulls of Bashan. Bashan was a region. It was known for being really fertile, so cattle could grow extremely large. And so they would have these large and fierce bulls. He characterized his enemies in verse 13 as ravenous lions, right? Those who are just waiting to attack David. He equates them with dogs in verse 16. And these are not domesticated dogs, by the way. These are not the dogs you name Biscuit. Um, these are feral dogs. These are wild dogs. When I traveled down to Mexico when I was a kid, my brothers and I, we, we traveled into like the city center of Mexico outside of, you know, the tourist area, and they had wild dogs everywhere. And our parents wouldn't let us have dogs, so we thought, hey, we're going to adopt a dog while we're in Mexico. And we named it Banjo. It was a great dog. And Banjo was wonderful so long as he wasn't hungry. <laughs> See, if he, was, if he was fed, he could be a great dog. We loved Banjo. We wanted to play with Banjo. You know, we tried to teach him tricks that he didn't want to go along with. But the second that Banjo was hungry, he would turn on you in an instant. He would bite the hand that fed him. And such are those who contribute to David's suffering. Not only does he feel like a worm, not only does he feel God's profound absence, but he's surrounded by those who despise him, vicious animals who mock him and his God to his face. 
may have noticed this if you've read this psalm before. David just goes back and forth. You can tell he's just utterly confused in his own mind about what's happening to him. In verses 1 and 2, we read it already. He feels forsaken by God. Why, God, have you forsaken me? But then he goes into verse 3 right after that and says, Yet, yet this is what I know. You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. That's who you are, God. I know that's true of you, but here I am suffering. Then in verses 6 through 8, David again goes through this mockery that's befalling him and being feeling like he's a worm. And then verse 9, he, he does another shift and he says, Yet I know this to be true. You are... He who took me from the womb, you made me trust in you from my mother's breast. And on you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. That's what you've done, God. I know it to be true, but here I am suffering. This is you, but this is what I'm feeling. I know this to be true, but this is what I feel. I know exactly what David feels like here. I, I felt myself spinning in these cycles. If You've known me for some time. I might have shared with many of you. There was a trial in my life where I would be jolted awake three or four times throughout the week with panic attacks right at 11 p.m. I'd go to bed at 9. I'd wake up at 11, jolted up by a panic attack. And my mind would be spinning because I couldn't fall asleep. I was tired. I was depressed. I was anxious. I'm wondering why, God, I just wish I could sleep. Then I'd fall asleep at about 4 o'clock in the morning. Kids would be up at 5.30. I'd start the day. And then... I'd grind my way through, and then I'd be going to bed, and I would just be praying to God, God, please, please don't wake me up at 11 o'clock. If you've been there, you know that feeling. You know what David's feeling, and David doesn't sugarcoat it. He says in verse 14, I feel like I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. I'm in personal pain all the time. My heart is like wax, meaning he has no feeling. He's numb. He's pliable. He has no strength. He's dried up like a shattered piece of pottery. He can't even muster enough strength to speak. He says his tongue sticks to his jaw. He feels as if he's hit the bottom of despair. And to add the exclamation point on it, he says, You lay me in the dust of death, God. It's almost as if David is saying, you know what, God, if I'm being honest, at times death seems preferable. And it's times like that you need to know God understands your suffering. He inspired David himself to write about it. God knows what you're going through. He understands your suffering. He wants you to read Psalms like this and Bible passages like this to know this is what it looks like to live the post-Eden experience. This is a world that is deviated from the original goodness of Genesis 1, where good, goodness and intimacy with God feel like the exception rather than the rule. So if you feel that way, there is nothing wrong with you. It's part and parcel of what it looks like to follow God in this world. Sometimes you will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And if Psalm 22 was all that there was, that's maybe all that we could say, but in light of who Jesus is, we can actually take one more step. We can step one step further. And we can say this clearly, that not only does God understand your suffering, but God experienced 
your suffering. God experienced your suffering. See, it's one thing to say that God understands your suffering. That's helpful. It's helpful in the way that a detached counselor is helpful. A counselor is an outsider, a spectator, somebody who can give an objective uh, insight into your life, a person who listens and cares and offers empathy. But in light of Jesus, we can actually say much more about God. You might be familiar if you have heard those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words are repeated a thousand years after, Jesus, after David was writing. They're repeated by Jesus himself. Jesus himself as he's being crucified. We're told that when he was crucified at about the ninth hour, that was about noon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma semichthani, that is my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? And as Jesus was in agony and suffering on the cross, we're told that bystanders came by. They looked at Jesus and they mocked him. They looked at him and said, oh, look at that Jesus, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked him saying, he saved others and he can't even save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now off the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with Jesus also reviled him in the same way. In Psalm 22, we read that David, he's crying out, this is verse 16. He says that his hands and his his feet, they're pierced. And we're told that enemies of David gambled for his clothing and they robbed him in verse 18. In the same way, Jesus, when he was crucified, we're told that he was stripped by Roman centurions, Roman soldiers, and they cast lots for his garments. They took everything Jesus had from him. See, God not only understands your suffering as an outside observer, as a detached onlooker, but Jesus experienced your suffering by becoming a sufferer with you. He actually took on suffering. He was wounded, despised, rejected by men. He knew what it meant to live the post-Eden experience, and he, he knew it throughout his life. It wasn't just on the cross. Jesus knows what it means to be tempted by sin and the suffering that that can entail. Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness with no food, no drink, and he was tempted by Satan, the deceiver himself. Jesus knows what it's like to lose somebody close to him, to lose a best friend. He lost Lazarus, who was one of his close and dear friends. He wept over Lazarus, and he saw the pain on Mary and Martha's face, uh, Lazarus' sister's. Jesus watched loved ones suffer. Peter's mother-in-law was once in bed with this debilitating illness. Jesus watched her suffer through that. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by a close friend as well. Judas, who was one of his closest followers, who shared a last meal with him. Jesus was suffered because of the betrayal of Judas and every other disciple who left, left Jesus to be abandoned by himself on the cross. Jesus, out of his great love for you, was willing to undergo everything it means to be human. He took on every dimension of the post-Eden experience. 
I love what Don Carson says about this because this is really helpful. Don Carson, who's a a biblical scholar, he put it this way. Uh, I don't have it in my notes, so he put it this way. (laughs) He put it this way. The God on whom we rely knows what suffering is all about, not merely in the way that God knows everything, but by experience. God entered in. He came down. He suffered with us. I've shared this illustration before. Uh, In 1962, there was this woman. Her name was Kitty Genovese. She lived in New York City. She lived in Kew Gardens. And one day, Kitty Genovese was walking alone in the middle of the night, and she was assaulted by a man in the middle of the street. And she's crying out, help me, help me. And she's being assaulted and robbed. And she was left ultimately dead on the streets of New York City. And as police officers came back and they started interviewing people who were in the surrounding apartments, they found out that 38 people had heard Katie's, or sorry, Kitty's screams, but nobody came down. Nobody wanted to risk their lives. Nobody wanted to suffer and fall victim themselves. The truth of Psalm 22, the truth of the Bible, the truth of Jesus is that God in Jesus came down. He came down. He came down and experienced suffering himself. He came and took on suffering and the post-Eden experience in full on the cross. Tim Keller, a, a pastor, put it this way. He says, say what you want about God and suffering, but the one thing you can't say in light of the cross is that God doesn't care or that God doesn't love you. Because in the cross, we know that the most excruciating pain ever to be experienced by a human being, the utter forsakenness of God, was experienced by Jesus when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the cross, the infinite and all-powerful God became weak and impotent for us. At the cross, the praiseworthy God was mocked and despised. At the cross, the Son of God cried out to his Father. At the cross, God himself was laid in the dust of death and experienced your suffering. And as great as that is, it is good to know. You ask any cancer patient, what is the most helpful thing to you? They will say, to know that I can get through something because somebody else has experienced it. To have another sufferer of cancer who has seen their way through, the most helpful thing they will say is to know somebody else has experienced this, they've got through it. And as good as that is, in light of the cross, we can actually take one more step further with Jesus. And we can say with full confidence, not only does God understand your suffering, not only does he experience your suffering, but thirdly, third step, God will heal your suffering. He will heal your suffering. Notice the shift in verse 22, if you have your Bibles open. All of a sudden, what started out as the dust of death, the post-Eden experience, forsaken by God, turns to this picture of the future. And David, in this picture of the future, it's no longer forsakenness by God, but it's praise and worship of God. Verse 22, David says, I will, I will, I will, future, tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. See, remember, David before could not eat. He could not speak. He had no strength. But then he sings of this coming day, verse 26. 
where he says, in the future, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. He continues, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who cannot keep himself alive. David, in his agony, pictures this future that he knows is certain when the suffering that he has experienced will be healed. When the hunger that he feels will be satisfied. When the heart that is melting within him will trust in Jesus and live forever. And those who have laid down in the dust of dead will rise out of their graves. He says they will rise again and they will bow down before God the King. In other words, David pictures a future day when the post-Eden world will be replaced. It'll be replaced by a world restored and perfected by God himself, right? In our world, you can see the difference. In our world, in post-Eden, the Son of God, Jesus, came down, he entered in, and our response to him was to crucify him. Our response to God was to crucify God and to give him the death common and only fit for an animal. And his followers mocked and suffered him, suffered, uh, they mocked him and shamed him for trusting in him. But in the world to come, you see this, this, this contrast, in the world to come envisioned here by David, Jesus will exchange his cross for a crown. And this crown, at this crown, Jesus will reign over earth and he will heal all human suffering. That's David's hope. He says that day is coming. And you notice this future day envisioned by David is not just pie in the sky. It's not just a hopeful, wishful thinking, close your eyes and cross your fingers. No, he says it is coming because God has done something. Just as when you're buying a house, it's worth $500,000, but you put down earnest money, a $5,000 saying, hey, because of this 5,000, something greater is coming in the future. That's exactly what David does here. He says in verse 24, this future is coming because God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. See, David is confident, even though he is despised and rejected by the world, even though he is mocked, God has not despised or abhorred him. Even though it seems like God has hidden his face, God has heard him. And because of that, David can be confident that God will heal his suffering in the future because he knows that God has heard him. And if that's true of David, again, how much more true for us who believe in Jesus? Because even though mockers despised Jesus, God did not despise Jesus ultimately. Even though it seemed like God was silent when Jesus cried out on the cross, God heard his prayers when he cried to him. And the, even though Jesus was laid in the dust of death, when it seemed like the end, that was actually just the beginning. God raised Jesus up from the dead. 
He brought him out of the grave. And we're told that those who trust in Jesus and follow him in this world of suffering, they too will be raised up again on the last day and experience healing from all the suffering that they feel in this world. I want to close with this story, the story of Joseph Swain. He wrote a very well-known hymn. It's not as well-known today, but it's entitled, Come Ye Souls by Sin Afflicted. And the opening of that song or that, that hymn is, is just so beautiful. If you know the story of Joseph Swain, it's even more beautiful. Joseph Swain died at an early age. He died at 35. And he was ordained to ministry at the age of 31. And it was only a couple years into his pastoral ministry, a pastoral ministry that promised such fruitfulness. He was a very gifted preacher. He was a gifted songwriter. He found out just a couple years in that he was suffering from a debilitating illness and he would soon lose his life. And at age 35, the Lord took him home. But the opening verse of that hymn is, Come ye souls by sin afflicted, wounded, tied, sorrow down, by the broken law convicted, through the cross, behold the crown. Look to Jesus, look to Jesus. Mercy and healing flows through him alone. In your suffering, know this truth. God will heal your suffering through the cross. Behold the crown of Jesus, who though he was despised and rejected by men, God lifted him up from the grave and promises for those who trust in him. Not only will their sins be forgiven, but their sufferings will be taken away in glory. That is the God we serve. That's the God who we're going to sing about here in a moment. Let's praise him. But first, let's pray. Lord God, thank you that this is who you are. You are the suffering God. The God who knows what it means to be tired. The God who knows what it means to have anguish. The God who knows what it means to cry out in this world, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God, thank you that we have such great hope in Jesus, your son. That though he was despised and rejected, though he was shamed, though he was scorned and brought down to the pit of despair, you raised him up in glory through his cross. You gave him a crown. And God, we look forward to that day. God, we look forward to that day when our tears will be wiped away by you, when our suffering will be healed, where there will be no pain and no sorrow as far as the east is from the west, and our sin will be completely forgiven and removed. And God, as we look toward that day, would you give us courage and strength? Would you help us suffer well? Jesus, you call us to take up our crosses, to bear them. And we confess, Jesus, sometimes we don't have the strength to even lift up our head. Would you lift up our head? Would you give us eyes for you? Would you help us look to you, Jesus, and the mercy you offer suffering, afflicted sinners here below? And we pray this all in your holy and righteous name, Jesus. Amen.